Welcome back to our study of the Gospel of Luke here in the Listener's Commentary. In this section, we are going to be looking at Luke 13, verses 22 through 35. Luke 13, 22 through 35 really provides a contrast with the end of the preceding section. In that section, it ended by talking about how the kingdom of God is going to grow to be like a tree, a a big tree that the birds can nest in. But, according to Luke 13, 22 through 35, even though that's going to happen, that the kingdom of God is going to continue to expand, many people will find themselves on the outside of it looking in with sorrow and maybe even with anger. In fact, many of those people that you would expect to be on the inside, that would be part of that ever-growing kingdom, that would be part of that great tree of the kingdom that started small and grew big, many that you would expect to be there won't be there and are going to miss out. And this section explains that and explains why that is. And in fact, this section even says that uh, that's evidenced already in Jesus' ministry as you watch what's happening all around him, that there's people who, man, you would think would be ready to be there They'd be some of the most prepared to enter, and they just aren't, and they just don't or won't enter into it. Now, remember that this is part of this large section that began in Luke chapter 9, goes all the way into the middle of Luke 19, where Luke has presented Jesus as on the way to Jerusalem. And that is really uh, shows up here in this section. And why he's on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus knows he's on his way there. And so we're continuing that thematic approach to Jesus' ministry that, as Luke has arranged it, that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's going to get there soon. He's going to get there shortly. And he knows what's going to happen when he arrives. Here's how this section unfolds. Verse 22, uh, a general statement in verse 22 of that theme of Jesus being on his way to Jerusalem. And so as he was passing through one city and village after another, this travel narrative, Jesus is an itinerant teacher. He's moving from place to place, and he has the ultimate goal of ending up at Jerusalem. So as he's passing from one city to another village and then another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And so that reminds us of where we're at in the narrative how Luke has framed the story of Jesus, and it reminds us that Jesus really operated as an itinerant rabbi. And that that's important just, I think, even for getting a, a grasp on why we find some of Jesus' teachings at different locations in different Gospels, because Jesus is an itinerant rabbi. He's a traveling teacher, and as a traveling teacher, he has certain things he's going to talk about, and if he talks about them in one city, it doesn't mean he can't also talk about them, maybe in a slightly different way. Uh, in another city. And so we see that, right? So Jesus is a traveling teacher, and right now he's a traveling teacher with the goal of ending up at Jerusalem. Well, as he's traveling around and teaching, verse 23, someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are going to be saved? And it seems that this question was at least occasionally discussed in Jesus' day. Uh, Second Esdras 8 1 through 3 says this, The Most High made this world for the many, but the world to come for the sake of only the few. Many have been created, but only a few shall be saved. That's a Jewish writing, you know, from just before the time of Jesus. And so the question 
uh, are only a few going to be saved, at least was something that was written about, talked about, maybe discussed among the religious teachers of Jesus' day to some degree or another. And the question really is, who's going to inherit the world to come? This present world, Second Ezra says, is made for the many, but the world to come is made only for the few. And that's really the question. Who's going to inherit the world to come? Just a few? Well, instead of answering them directly, Jesus actually gives a challenge and a warning to them. Instead of, in other words, worrying about uh, the, the exact number and who's in and who's out, you should make sure that you're one of those who will be there. That's really how Jesus responds to this question. He says this, And he said to them, Verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Now, he's going to clarify that last little bit, but notice the challenge in the warning. Strive to enter through the narrow door. There's people who want to get there, but don't make it. When he says strive, the Greek word behind that is agonizomai. Uh, from which we get our English word, agonized. It was a word that was used in the world of athletes of Jesus' day to speak of effort, training, discipline. The word spoke of toiling, right? Like making great effort towards. And it reminds us, as Dallas Willard was fond of saying, that grace is opposed to earning but it's not opposed to effort. And Jesus is implying effort here. You make real effort to enter through the narrow door. What does he mean by the narrow door? Well, he probably refers to himself as the door to the people of God. He's the narrow way. He's the narrow gate. He's the narrow door. In fact, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as that gate, as that door there in John 10. And that idea probably lies in the background here too. So to enter by the narrow door is really to enter through Jesus, which means to attach oneself to Jesus, to follow Jesus, to become a disciple of Jesus. And that's really why one must strive to enter, because discipleship requires discipline and effort. That's just what it means to be a disciple. You're going to make real effort. You're going to be disciplined to listen to and follow your teacher. And in this case, that teacher is Jesus. And notice here that um, just like in that passage from 2nd Edstress, many stands in contrast to the few of what Jesus says. Strive to enter the narrow gate for many I tell you, will seek to enter. Only a few are going to be saved. Many are going to try. And so you have that, those two that are in contrast. Many are going to want to enter, but the few of the initial question, are few going to be saved? They stand in contrast to that. So the number of people for who the world to come is made isn't, isn't, isn't static. It's not fixed. Uh, like exactly who's in isn't set in stone. Many people will miss out but that's because they didn't make the effort to enter through Jesus. And so instead of worrying about the exact number, instead of worrying about exactly who's going to be in uh, there and who can enter into it, why don't you make it the effort to make sure you're one of the ones who gets to be there? Well, Jesus then extends uh, that metaphor of entering through the, the narrow door. He extends that metaphor to paint a picture of a house um, and 
the the banquet, the great banquet taking place in that house to explain why it is that many will seek to enter but won't be able to. So why why will many seek to enter and not be able to enter in? Here's how Jesus answers that question. Verse 25, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin standing outside knocking on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, he will then answer and say to you, I don't know where you're from. So notice, as Jesus extends this metaphor, that the door was open. That is, it was open to any and all who want to come in. Uh, Jesus has an open door policy, right? And you see that in his ministry. He's welcoming all sorts of people, even the wrong kinds of people. He's gladly and willing to welcome any and all that would come. So the door is open for a time period, and that open door allows whoever makes the effort, whoever strives to enter, to enter in. But people will miss out, not because uh, Jesus has an exclusive list. People will miss out, not because he's, you know, he's only got a few he wants in. People will miss out because they wait until it's too late and the door is shut. So people miss out on salvation, according to Jesus, not because it was an exclusive invitation list or because the door is hard to find or anything like that. They miss out only because they didn't make the effort to enter through the door when the door was open. And then all of a sudden it's too late. And now they realize they missed out and they're banging and wanting in. But it's too late. And the master of the household says, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from. I don't really know who you are. Um, and what Jesus says next makes it clear that he's referring to himself and he's referring to his ministry among the Jews and he's referring to so many of them rejecting him and rejecting his teaching. This is, this is how it shows up. Verse 26, he says, Then you will begin saying, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets, right? An allusion to his ministry. And so this idea of not entering in, he's saying like a lot of you need to make the effort to enter in because you're not going to, you're waiting till it's too late and the door is going to get shut and then you're going to find yourselves on the outside and in and then you're going to be banging on the door saying, hey, let us in. We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. In other words, we were around you and you were around us. That's not the same thing as becoming a disciple. And that's not the same thing as being in real relationship with. And yet he, the Lord, the master will say, I don't know where you're from. Leave me, all you evildoers. And notice that the real issue isn't geography. It's their spiritual character. They're evildoers. Get away from me. Go away. You're not welcome at this party. You're evildoers. And they're evildoers because they've rejected Jesus. They're evildoers because they've rejected the, the source of salvation, the one who could forgive their sins. And so I don't know you. There's no relationship here. And notice and twice that line is restated. I don't know where you're from. I don't know where you're from. Like there is no relationship here. I do not know you. And that's the key thing to know, particularly in. Um, Jewish language to know is to know intimately, right? Like, 
Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore a son. We see that in the Old Testament. This idea of this deep, intimate relationship. I, there's just none of that here. I don't even know where you're from. Uh, I, I know you're evildoers and that's what I know. So get away from me, leave. And then he goes on and says, in that place, wherever you have to depart to, on the outside of this great banquet hall, this great house, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, weeping is this idea of mourning, right? Sorrow, obviously. Gnashing of teeth, grinding of teeth, gnashing of teeth. In Psalm 35 and Psalm 37, gnashing of teeth is an expression of anger. And so I suspect that's probably what that imagery means here. Like there's going to be sorrow and there's going to be resentment and anger at the way things played out. And so in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three great patriarchs from Jewish history, right? When you see your patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west, from north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And so here we have a picture of reclining at the table, a picture of the great banquet, uh, the great banquet that God's going to throw for all his people when he restores all things. And the promise of the great banquet has its roots in Isaiah 25, verse 6. Here's what Isaiah 25, 6 says. Now, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies will Prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined and aged wine. And so there's going to be this great banquet with the best meats and the best wine, the best food. It's going to be this glorious feast is the idea. Well, that imagery then had become very central to Jewish thinking about what was going to happen. And that's what they looked forward to. And that's why several times already in the Gospel of Luke, We've seen this idea of feasting and eating lead to conversations about this final ultimate banquet. And so here in this, um, this teaching, Jesus says it's going to be a place of weeping and, and gnashing of teeth when you Jews who had Jesus in your presence and had the opportunity to enter in, and now you get to that great banquet, and guess what? You don't get to enjoy it because you didn't make every effort to enter through the narrow door. And notice what he says, that you're going to see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, and people from the four points of the, the compass, right? Like all over the place, east, west, north, south, eating uh, at, at the, in this feast at the kingdom of God. Well, notice in Isaiah 25, 6, that this banquet isn't just for the Jews. It's for, it's for all peoples. And that's alluded to here in what Jesus says. You're, you're going to get Jews. You're going to get prophets. You're going to get famous patriarchs. But you're going to get people from all over the globe, which will include Jews who are scattered throughout the world, as well as, we know from the story of Acts, Gentiles now who are welcome into his people. And they're going to be part of that great feast as well. And they're going to enjoy this great, great banquet. In fact, Jesus goes on in verse 30 and he says, And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. In other words, contrary to popular expectation of Jesus' day, those who you would least to expect to be there are actually going to be there. Those that 
uh, you would think they're at the end of the line, and if they make it in, man, they're going to make it in by the skin of their teeth. Well, but guess what? They're actually going to get fast-tracked. They're going to get moved to the front of the line. There are people you think they should be the most ready and willing, and uh, certainly they're going to be there, and yet they're going to get moved to the end of the line. It all depends on who makes the effort to enter by Jesus the narrow door. Well, the story here in this section goes on then and says, At that very time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave this place, because Herod wants to kill you. Um, now, these Pharisees offer this warning to Jesus because they recognize the threat to Herod. And some people have posited false motives to these Pharisees, seemingly assuming that all Pharisees are bad. But there's no reason to do so. Luke has made it very clear that he's willing to identify false motives when people have them, and he just doesn't do so here. So it seems more likely that these Pharisees are, in some sense, sympathizers with Jesus. They appreciate Jesus and, in some sense, sympathize with him. And Herod is um, increasingly getting hostile to him or has some threat out for him. And so they come and they give Jesus a warning. Here's how Jesus responds to that, verse 32. And Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox, and he's going he's gonna to have words that uh, you can report back to Herod if you want. Let me just clarify what, he, what Jesus probably means when he says, go and tell that fox. We tend to think of a fox as like a sly, crafty creature. And so when he says, go and tell that fox, that's probably what more often we have in mind. Oh, yeah, you go tell that cunning little fox, right? But that's probably not the sense here. More likely, it refers to Herod as insignificant and weak. For example, in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3, a fox is seen as a small, weak creature. And the rabbis tended to view Herod as weak and unable to carry out his plans and his threats. He was just kind of like a puppet king. He was a little token king. So he was weak and didn't have a whole lot of real authority or power. Um, one, one scholar suggests words like weakling or small fry or clown or weasel or poser would capture the feel of what Jesus means by calling Herod that fox. You go tell that poser. You go tell that weakling, that clown, that weasel, that small fry, right? Like you go tell him and he's that's more the sense. He's not the real king. He's no real threat to Jesus' mission. He doesn't have real authority. So you go tell him. What are they supposed to tell him? Well you go tell that fox, that weakling, behold I'm casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I reach my goal. So Jesus is going to carry on and carry out his mission. And he's going to finish or reach his goal, he says, on the third day. And that's probably, it could be literal. He could be when this actually happens three days from Jerusalem. But it's just as likely that it's probably not literal. We're still six chapters from Jerusalem in the, the story of Luke's gospel, so it would be a little odd to put that here and then have a, such a long time period before we, we get to Jerusalem. And so it's probably an allusion just to shortly. It's just a way of saying shortly. Today, tomorrow, and on the next day, meaning shortly, uh, he will arrive at his goal. And his goal, as he's going to go on and say, is going to include death, actually. Um, he knows that's coming. He's going to say that in the very next verse. And so maybe the reason he chooses three days as an allusion to shortly is 
also is an allusion to his rising on the third day. He knows that's going to happen as well. We're going to get that conversation fairly soon, too. And so um, maybe it's literal, probably it's just uh, metaphorical for shortly, maybe even an allusion to his resurrection on the third day. So I'll reach my goal on the third day, right? And you can hear when you say it like that, the the, the echo up. I'm going to bring new creation. I will be vindicated and I will be, uh, you know, like, seen to be the true king in the face of this poser on the third day, an allusion to his resurrection. Uh, verse 33, nevertheless, I must go on my journey today, tomorrow, and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So he's going to keep carrying on. Herod's really no threat to stopping Jesus' mission and arriving at his goal, achieving his goal on the third day. He's going to keep carrying on, heading to Jerusalem, because that's where his death has to happen. Notice that these Pharisees come, and they give Jesus this warning because they're trying to keep him from dying, his death. But Jesus knows he's heading to Jerusalem, and that's where his death is going to happen, and it's going to happen fairly soon, fairly shortly. And so that leads then to a lament for Jerusalem. Jesus is going to mourn over Jerusalem. Here's what he says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. Like you have this long history of killing the very people sent by God to, to speak God's message to you, to lead you in God's ways. And you have this long history of doing that, right? Like that's who you are. That's become your character. That's almost the way Jesus describes it here. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her young under her wings, and you were unwilling. So Jerusalem has been the center of Israel's national and religious life since the, the days of David, right? A thousand years before the time of Jesus. Um, when it was destroyed by the Babylonians, right? Jeremiah penned a whole book, a long lament on behalf of Jerusalem, the book of Lamentations. He, he penned this lament. Well, here we get Jesus's own short little lament because he knows what's coming. He, her character is real. He knows what that means. We, we've seen that he knows she's on a collision course with Rome. And so here we get a glimpse of Jesus' heart. He longs to gather the people of Jerusalem under the shelter of his wings, just like a henwood for her chicks. She just refuses. Jerusalem just refuses to gather to Jesus and come to her and listen to him and follow in his ways. Um, and it really breaks Jesus' heart. Verse 35, he says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. When he says, Your house is left to you desolate, it's possible that your house refers to the temple. That's highly likely because the temple was described as the house, right? Like the house of God, the place of worship. That was one of the ways it was used. And when he says, is left to you desolate, the word desolate is supplied. And so really the idea is you're on your own. Your house is left to you. It's abandoned is the idea. And so if it's referring to the temple, then what he's really saying is, um, the, your, your temple is empty and abandoned, and it's just your own thing. It's just left to you. 
it has nothing to do uh, with truth and with God and with God's ways at this point. It is just abandoned. Um, and then when he says, you won't see me until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, that um, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord is a quote from Psalm 118. That's Psalm 118.26. And it's actually going to be quoted about Jesus when he enters into Jerusalem in Luke 19.38 and following. And so uh, when Jesus arrives at Jerusalem and what we call the triumphal entry, they're going to be saying these words about him. And Jesus seems to know that, right? He knows that that's coming. And so he's going to be outside of Jerusalem until that moment when he rides into Jerusalem and they're going to say those words and that's when they're going to see him. And so this passage begins by reminding us that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows that that's where he'll complete his mission. He knows that Completing his mission involves dying, and we know from other texts it involves rising as well. And so he knows that his mission is going to culminate in Jerusalem. And so this section ends with a lament for Jerusalem because of her hard-heartedness and her recalcitrance against God. And that recalcitrance is now evidenced in her rejection of Jesus. And so really two big themes seem to emerge from this section. The first is that the door of salvation is now found in Jesus. God's people are those who enter into him. The great messianic banquet that the Jews long for and look forward to, well, it's enjoyed by those who come to Jesus. And so make every effort to do so. Don't be casual about it. Don't just say, oh yeah, we've been around you. We know some things about you. We heard you teach. We saw you, right? Don't have a casual, loose association with Jesus. You need to attach yourself to Jesus so that he doesn't say, I never knew you. I don't even know where you're from. We have no real relationship. Um, since the door of salvation, the door into the great banquet is Jesus himself. Make every effort to attach yourself to Jesus as his disciple. The second theme that shows up here is many people just prefer their own way until it's too late. Um, even many religious people, even many people you think would be prepared, many people that should know better. They grew up in homes where they should have known better. They had access to great teaching, but they didn't make any effort. They just took it half-heartedly and casually. And then all of a sudden it was too late and they find themselves banging on the door, wishing they could get in. So being religious doesn't automatically give you access to the final great banquet. Um, having even some familiarity with Jesus and Jesus' word and Jesus' teaching, that, that doesn't give you access. You have to really hear what Jesus says and heed what Jesus says. You have to be his disciple. You have to make effort to listen and follow and attach yourself to him in order in, to enter into the great banquet. And the people of Jesus' day, so many of them are not doing that. So who's going to be saved? Is it a few or is it many? And Jesus would say, well, just make sure you make every effort to enter in. Make sure you make real effort. You strive. You agonize. You make real effort to enter into Jesus and listen to him and attach yourself to him. Because that's where salvation is found.